Amen. So good morning. Our scripture reading this morning comes from Luke chapter 19. Since it's, the, since it's Palm Sunday this morning and we're uh, celebrating and remembering that, I thought it might be good for us to look at the text itself, but from Luke's recounting of it. So if you have a Bible and you want to read along, you can turn there. Uh, if not, it's on the screen behind me. If you're at home, it'll be on your screen as well. Let's read. We've already read Matthew's account. Luke's is a little different, beginning in verse 37. So let's read the details of this story together. Uh, remember, Jesus is coming into Jerusalem in the last week of his life. He's, mount, he's cresting the Mount of Olives, as we'll see here, and he's being met along the way by the crowds. As he was drawing near, already on the way down the Mount of Olives, the whole multitude of his disciples began to rejoice and praise God with a loud voice for all the mighty works that they had seen, saying, Blessed is the King who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest and some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to him, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. And he answered, I tell you, if these were silent, the very stones would cry out. This is God's word. Say with me, the grass withers, the flowers fade, but the word of our God stands forever. Amen. This scene in Luke 19 ends a section of material in Luke's gospel that began all the way back in chapter 9. It's called the travel narrative. And it started with Luke describing a definitive moment in which Jesus set his face to go towards Jerusalem. That's chapter 9, verse 51. It was at the peak of his popularity. And in that moment, when he could have probably you know, launched a megachurch or a worldwide ministry, he instead decidedly embraced the mission. He chose obedience, the cross. And this scene is the culmination of that choice. And all of the events that happened from that moment in Luke 9 to the culmination here in Luke 19, the whole of his ministry from that moment to this moment was a journey towards the cross. Thus, it is called the travel narrative because Jesus' whole life was a journey to the cross. He said, for this reason I've come when he was faced with the cross in John chapter 12. And so the cross defined his obedience. Though he was God, he became nothing, humbled himself, became a servant, was obedient even to death on the cross. We read that last week in Philippians 2. On the cross, this is what Christians, I just want to succinctly say, on the cross, Jesus died for the sins of the world as a substitute for all who believe in him. He took upon himself our sentence, the sentence our sins deserve. Our record of sin and failure was credited to his account so that we could be forgiven and reconciled to God. Isn't that great news? But the cross is also how he accomplished the obedience that we owe to God. Jesus died the death we should have died in our place, but he also lived the life that we should have lived so that his perfect record of obedience could be credited to our account to make us righteous. So the Apostle Paul puts it like this. He says, if we were reconciled to God by his death, how much more shall we be saved by his life? It's a fascinating verse, Romans 5.10. In other words, the gospel, the good news of Christianity, is far more than just forgiveness of sins. It's much more than that. In our Disciple by Grace curriculum, with which many of you have either gone through or you're going through, you're supposed to ask a question at, at one point towards the very beginning of that curriculum. You ask, what did Jesus do for you on the cross? And most people will give what is, in fact, a partial answer. They will say something like, well, Jesus died for my sins, and they think that that sums the whole thing up. But without the other half... 
that's a really depleted answer about what the gospel is in its fullness. Because if you just say Jesus died for my sins, then you might know that you've been forgiven. You might think, well, you know, God puts up with me because he has to, because of course what Jesus has done. But you don't know your true standing. You don't know that, no, you're not just forgiven, you're righteous. Because of his obedience in going to the cross, you can't be improved upon. You will never be more loved than you are right now. And it's all grace. It doesn't depend upon you at all. It doesn't come from you. It comes to you as a gift. That is the good news of Christianity. And it's the very first thing as we contemplate this passage. But the other thing this text in the whole travel narrative section of Luke's gospel is meant to do is to pose a question. To pose a question to Theophilus, who Luke is writing to, and to every person who is a disciple of Jesus or is, who is contemplating Becoming a disciple to Jesus, and that question is this. If you're thinking about putting your faith in Jesus, here's the question that you have to ponder. He went to the cross. Will you take up your cross and follow him? Because the cross is not just the symbol of Jesus' obedience, it's the symbol of ours too. Dietrich Bonhoeffer, who Twitter reminded me yesterday, was hanged uh, in the 40s yesterday, so it was the anniversary of his death, his martyrdom, but he famously put it like this. He said, and I only say, I mentioned that detail about his life because he, he didn't just talk the talk, he walked the walk in that sense, right? He said this, he said, the cross is not the terrible end to an otherwise God-fearing and happy life, but it meets us at the beginning of our communion with Christ. When Christ calls a man, he bids him come and die. And then he goes on, he says, every command of Jesus is a call to die. You came to church from good, good news this morning, didn't you? Every command of Jesus is a call to die. And so here at the beginning of Holy Week, that is what we are all confronted with. Will you go with Jesus to die with him, to carry your own cross? That's what it means to be a disciple. And if you want to know what that means, I know that feels heavy. So practically, in light of this text, if you want to know kind of how we're going to frame that question in more detail, here's what I would say to you. C.S. Lewis said there are two ways that you can live your life, only two. And I think there's some profound truth to this. He says you can choose to love and if you choose to love, then you are going to have to live with a broken heart, or you can choose a profoundly selfish life. The problem is, is if you choose that, then your heart won't be broken. It'll become unbreakable. You can live with a broken heart, or you can live with an unbreakable heart. And the second is way worse. So when I say, take up your cross, I mean that you have a supernatural ability because of the Spirit of God to choose a broken heart, and then in your relationships, in your marriage, in, you know, in this church, whatever it might be, that you would keep showing up to have your heart broken. Again, more good news. I promise it's going to get, the good news is coming. But here's what I want to say to you. That really, that is the job description, isn't it? If you want a job description of marriage, the best marriages, which are full of wonderful things, part of the job description is you wake up every day and you keep showing up to have this other person break your heart because they're a sinner. And you are too. It's the, it's the, it's the job description in, in, in parenting, isn't it? You wake up every day and show up to have those kids break your heart. And you keep coming. And you keep showing up to have your heart broken in parenting, in marriage, in friendship, in pastoring. In every part of life. There is a scene in uh, season one. It's episode eight of WandaVision, which is one of the Marvel Disney um, you know, mini series that they've done where the lead character, it's, it's a, I really enjoyed it. She's overwhelmed by her grief. 
That's what you really get to the bottom of what's happening is she's having to process her grief over this incredible loss that she's experienced as a part of kind of the, the Marvel Cinematic Universe story arc. And here's how she says it. She says, it's just like this wave washing over me again and again. It knocks me down, and when I try to stand up, it just comes for me again, and I can't. It's going to drown me. And then uh, the response that the other main character in the story has, uh, I mean, just just laid me, just laid, just put me in pieces. He said, she's describing this grief. It just, it comes for me again and again, and I'm, it's going gonna, it's gonna to drown me. And he says, yes, but what is grief if not love persevering? What a line. Whoever wrote that deserves a big raise. What is grief if not love persevering? Which means you and I need to find the courage to be able to endure sadness, to endure the broken heart that comes with love, and to keep showing up again and again to have your heart broken. And to do that, you got to see what is given to us here in this text. You've got to see the conquering king here mounting, the, cre- the cresting the Mount of Olives. But he is not just the conquering king, he's also the weeping king. And if you see that he's the conquering king, who is also the weeping king, that vision of what we're given here will give you both a mission and a voice. And so let's look at this text in a little more detail first. In order to possess the courage to endure sadness, you have to see the conquering king and celebrate him and crown him. The crowds here in Luke 19 are singing from Psalm 118. Blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. They are rightfully discerning that Jesus is the long-awaited Messiah, that the fulfillment of the prophet's words that a king would come and on the Mount of Olives would defeat the enemies of God's people and bring salvation. And they say, this is the moment. Here he is. And they rightly celebrate him. But you know, the story of the Bible is that the world is broken because we've turned away from God. And there is no way back on our own, but there is one who would come. The Bible tells of a king, and he would defeat the dragon and wake the sleeping beauty of humanity and make the world paradise again. The stories are true, right? I love that line in the song we sing. The stories are true. And this is the claim that's being made by the crowds, that Jesus was that king, that he was the one who comes in the name of the Lord, that is to do God's will with God's character, not like all of the other kings the world has known who selfishly grab for power. This king, this one they're hailing, would come to heal the world with humility and love. He would be the true king. And the Bible describes the deep desire of every human heart to crown a king. We have to build our lives around and serve something. We can't have no king. We all live... Oh, Siri's going to talk to us. Isn't that nice? That's hilarious. That's the first time that's ever happened. Apparently, it's too far down on my wrist. We, man, the, the devil is in the technology. Here, yeah, should I? There you go. But now I have no idea what time it is, so you're in trouble. I don't know. <laughs> Actually, there's a clock back there. We're okay. Okay. Where was I before I was so rudely interrupted? We can't have no king. We all live for something. We all look to something for meaning and hope. And whatever it is, whatever it is, if it is not the true king, it does not serve you. You serve it. You crown it. If it's family, if that's what you're living for, then you crown it. You serve it. 
And before you know it, you become a slave to your kids and their happiness, and you have crippling anxiety over whether they're doing okay or not. If it's career, you crown it, you serve it, it becomes your Lord, you become driven to succeed and to ignore maybe your own physical health or your family's needs. We are spiritually starving for a king. We're not free because we've all crowned things that demand we bow down before them. But Jesus is the only king who does not demand that you serve him. He serves you and sets you free. There are two outcomes that their song alludes to. Do you say there? see there verse 38? Blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. So Jesus reigning in your heart. Jesus crowned the king of your whole life is the only thing that can fill your life with peace and glory. Peace, referring to something that was broken and is now being put back together again, that's being made whole. All the discordant parts becoming a beautiful harmony. So if Jesus comes to reign in you, and if you crown him, he can give you such inner steadfastness and repose, humility and calm and courage that it will make possible to you a whole new way of life. There's a there's a, the story, the part that we didn't read illustrates this. There's, there's an illustration here in the story. It says that as Jesus is riding in, that the cult that Jesus is riding into Jerusalem, it's a cult that had never been ridden. Jesus was the first person to ever ride it. And it's a detail, but it's an important detail because, of course, what usually happens the first time a cowboy tries to ride a horse? Now, I know you all know. You watch Yellowstone. I know you know, okay? You know how this works. Don't pretend like you don't. What happens? What happens when the three-year-old tries to ride the family dog in the living room? Usually, the animal doesn't respond with, hmm, okay, this is new, but okay, let's do this, right? No, the horse kicks and bucks and tries to throw the cowboy off. You have to break a horse before you can ride it, and it takes time. It takes a good cowboy, right, in, in, in the Yellowstone, a good-looking good cowboy, so... It, ta- it takes all these things, but not here, not here. This is a subtle miracle because if there's such a thing as a subtle miracle, Jesus rode into Jerusalem on a colt that had never been ridden because he is the king that brings peace. And that peace, that inner strength and calm is what makes love persevering possible. When you are full of peace, you can be a peacemaker in the world. But not only peace, it says glory too. And glory refers to substance, weight, matter. Remember what we said last week, we are glory empty, we're glory hungry. That's what that word conceit in Philippians 2 means. We have a glory problem. And John Piper has defined sin as the glory of God not honored, the holiness of God not revered, the greatness of God not admired, the beauty of God not treasured, the goodness of God not savored, the faithfulness of God not trusted, The wrath of God not feared, the grace of God not cherished, the person of God not loved. And so glory here means that God gets put in his proper place. And here's why that's good news. Because when God gets put in his proper place in your heart and life, then everything else gets put in its proper place. And so many of the things going wrong in our lives are because we are not properly oriented Godward. It's the essence of sin, but love persevering requires that you be living from the glory that only comes from God. Not trying to get glory from others, remember. Only Jesus reigning in your heart, filling you with peace and glory makes that possible. He is the conquering king, and if you will let him, he can conquer your heart too. Secondly, in order to possess the courage and endurance 
courage to endure sadness. You have to see, not only is he the conquering king, but he's also the weeping king. And this is the surprise. It's, it's not in what we read because I wanted to keep it a surprise. Uh, but it says, as you go along, if you were to keep going in the next verse, beyond the one we finished the reading with, we finished in verse 40. It says, as the crowds shouted and sang and waved their palm branches in triumph. This is, this is Luke's version, and it's the unique detail in Luke's version. It says in the next verse, when he drew near the city, he wept over it. They are singing and lauding and, and, uh, and waving palm branches, and Jesus is weeping. We call this his triumphal entry, but he's weeping. And we're meant to see it and say, what in the world? Who is this? What? This is somebody different than anybody else we've ever seen. Because when Muhammad entered Mecca victorious in, 16, excuse me, in 629 A.D., he was riding a war horse. He was surrounded by 400 mounted men and some 10,000 foot soldiers, and it was a show of force. Jesus, the true king, entered Jerusalem, not riding a war horse, but a colt, fulfilling the words of Zechariah the prophet, Behold, your king, righteous and having salvation, is he humble and mounted on a donkey. All the other kings were superheroes. Jesus was not. He came, not in power, but in weakness. He came, not to make war, but to make war cease. He came, not to bring judgment, but to bear judgment. All the other kings, you might crown demand that you give your life for them and serve them but jesus is the king who gave his life for you and serves you and the first question of course is why is he weeping why why would he be weeping it's odd it's one of the places where you you really clue into the fact okay this guy this guy's different something he is otherworldly because his emotional reactions are the exact opposite of what you would expect them to be have you ever been to a parade and the grand marshal of the parade is in the back of the car and and not doing the princess wave but they're weeping as they go not a great parade. I mean, not, you know, not exactly what you're expecting, but here he is. And it says that when he saw the city, he started to weep. He saw Jerusalem. He saw God's city, the city of peace. Literally, that's the name. And there was no peace. He wept because the city and its people were under the judgment of God because of their sins. And within a generation... In 70 AD, the Romans under Titus's command would lay siege to Jerusalem, and it was awful. What was coming for them was awful. You can read the historical accounts of mothers killing their babies to eat them because starvation was so profound. It was terrible. It was one of the world's you know, greatest tragedies in history, and God would judge them for their sins. But here's the thing. In Jesus, he had visited them first. He had himself come down to walk among them and teach them and bring salvation, but they would not listen. They would not receive him. Sure, the crowds are lauding him in the moment, but soon they would be calling for his death. And so he weeps. His heart is grieved over this. But the second question, I think, is, but what does it mean? What does his weeping mean? And what does it reveal about what kind of king he is, about what God is like? And it says in, first, in John chapter 1, that he came in Jesus to his own and they did not receive him. They rejected him. They will see him crucified. And he considers all of their sin. He feels all of their betrayal and rejection. And here's what's astounding. He does not sit in righteous judgment. He does not respond with anger. He doesn't, call, he doesn't allow John and James to call fire from heaven to consume all of those stupid people. He's just sad. I mean, God's emotional life is very complex. It is beyond us. But we were meant to look upon God and Jesus. And here, here the picture of God that you get 
here you have his tears. Nicholas Wolterstaff has written a beautiful book about lament. And he wrote this. He said, the tears of God are the meaning of history. Now, what does that phrase mean? At the very beginning, when the man and the woman first sinned, God had a choice. God had a choice. He could be angry or be sad, and he chose sadness. He could be angry and just wipe, you know, the earth and start over, or he could choose to be sad, and he chose sadness. He chose to live with a broken heart. He chose to suffer. Thus, human history through the ages, bringing us to this moment here in Luke 19, and even this moment as we gather in this room this morning, but why? Why? Why Why are we here? What is the reason for it all? And Volterstaff says this. He says, God is love. That is why he suffers. To love our suffering, sinful world is to suffer. Suffering is the meaning of our world, for love is the meaning, and love suffers. When we're in it together, God and we, the history of the world is the history of our suffering together. Every act of evil extracts a tear from God. Every plunge into anguish extracts a sob from God. But also the history of our world is the history of our deliverance together. God's work to release himself from his suffering is his work to deliver the world from its agony. Beautiful words. God is angry at sin, yes. Remember 70 AD, terrible, awful things, the destruction of Jerusalem, but even more profoundly, his response to sin is grief. And here's all I know, because here Jesus is cresting the Mount of Olives. And if you've ever been to Jerusalem, they always take you to this spot because you're there and uh, the road into Jerusalem takes you down into the valley, into the Kidron Valley, and then up the other side into the city. And the place where the road begins to descend, even today, if you go, is a large cemetery, as it was then. It's a place of death. The Kidron Valley is so named because the river at the bottom would run black with the blood of the sacrifices from the temple. And so it's a, it's a symbol. Jesus would go down into the Kidron Valley and come up the other side into the city. So here on the Mount of Olives, he is being hailed the king, but he would soon descend into the valley of the shadow of death. Jesus' tears mean that God is love. And love means suffering. And so in Jesus Christ, the suffering love of God will be put on full display as he goes to the cross to die for the sins of the world. God's truest response to sin and all its consequences is mercy. Our sin and heartbreak break his heart. He's not sheltered himself from this pain. He's allowed it to enter into his heart. He has come in Jesus Christ to enter into our suffering, to forgive our sin and heal us through his death and resurrection. And so he weeps. It's astounding. It is more than we deserve. It is grace that is beyond the pale, and I hope it sits on your heart like that. But here's the thing. How does that keep you on mission? Because it can give you a mission and a voice. That's my application. It can give you a mission and a voice. Well, remember, two ways to live. We live with a broken heart or with an unbreakable heart, with love or selfishness, and to choose love, you have to choose sadness. And this allows you to move out into a life of choosing sadness. There's a scene in the new Ryan Reynolds movie on Netflix, if you've seen it, The Atom Project. So slight spoiler alert, it's about time travel and uh, there's a lot of intricacies. So the Ryan Reynolds character is having a conversation with himself when he uh, was a young boy. So from the future, he's come back, he's, he's seen himself as a young boy. I know I've confused you, but it's okay. You'll, you'll figure it out. The boy, the boy version of himself is dealing with his sadness over his relationship with his dad. But he's having this conversation with, with the person that he's going to become, and he's looking at the way that that sadness has turned to anger and resentment and all of these things and what it has done to his future self, the way it's twisted his perception of the past. And so he confronts the adult version of himself. He says, you hate him. 
because it's something that's gone on with his dad. He says, you hate him. <laughs> so profound. He says, you, you made yourself hate because it was easier than missing him. Things happen to you, to us, and we suck at dealing with it. He says, excuse my language, but here's the line. And if you watch the movie, watch it for this line. He says, I think, this is a young boy talking. He says, I think that it's easier to be angry than it is to be sad. See, when people hurt you, it's easier to be angry than it is to be sad. When you're criticized or rejected, when someone sins against you, the most natural thing is for it to settle into your heart as resentment. It's so easy to close off your heart. It's so much harder to just be sad. It takes so much more energy and self-control to just live with a broken heart. When you're sad, though, you're not in control, and we don't like not being in control. And anger is often how we try to regain control, but Jesus was a man of sorrow. He was acquainted with grief. And listen, my only, my only advice to you is that is the mission. Sadness is love persevering. And so you need an internal spiritual engine of joy and courage to persevere. You, and you get it from this scene. You see it in Jesus' tears and his obedience for you that he did not respond to your sin against him with anger but with sadness. He is compassionate, not just in general, but toward the very worst parts of you. In Hebrews it says that for the joy set before, well, for the joy set before him, for the joy of having you, he endured the cross, which means that God's heart for you can give you a heart of compassion too. His sadness and not anger can, at your sins, can cause you to endure in sadness for the sake of love so that you begin to really see people. It says Jesus saw the city and wept. And I love this quote. I don't even know who to attribute it to. It's in my notes from a long time ago, and I've lost, I've lost the person who said it, but you begin to see people because there is a universe alive within the people we love. At best, we know the little plot of land within them that we've mapped out, but there are entire lands and oceans and skies and galaxies that we cannot even fathom. We have, at best, rumors of the mystery that exists within the people we spend our lives with. And anger keeps you from seeing. It keeps you from the exploration so here's my question, who are you not seeing? Who have you stopped seeing? You can only begin to see, you can also begin to risk with people. C.S. Lewis is right, there's no safe investment. If you love, it will mean a broken heart because we're all sinners and we live in a sinful fallen world and love is risky but it's worth the risk. And there's only one place outside of heaven where we can be perfectly safe from all the dangers and inconveniences of love. Do you know where it is? Hell. There is one certainty, God's love. Everything else is a risk, but his love is so sure, it is so true, it is so steady, so strong, so lasting that you can risk with all your other loves. You can forgive, you can keep believing in someone who's let you down in the past, you can keep showing up to get your heart broken because your heart is safe with him. So where do you need to risk? Who are you not risking with? Who have you stopped risking with? Ponder that. But you can only begin to see and begin to risk. You can also begin to weep. Weep with people. Weep for people. Weep because of people. Blessed are those who mourn, Matthew 5. You can do the harder work of being sad, not aggravated, not angry, not hard-hearted, because the supreme act of love is to push past your own selfishness and to keep yourself safe and to discover where the other person cries and to enter into their pain and to allow their hurt to hurt you. So who, who do you need to weep over? What do you need to weep over? Who do you need to just weep with or weep because of? 
because that is the mission. But seeing and risking and weeping, it's the mission, but the mission is fueled. It's got to be fueled by worship, by gratitude, not mere effort. This is not, you don't white knuckle this. It has to come from a deeper place. And so I want to just leave you with this. My favorite part of the text is the Pharisees telling Jesus to keep the crowds quiet. I love it. You can make these people be quiet. And here's Jesus' response. He says, I can't do that because if they are quiet, then the stones are going to start crying out. Now that shows how messed up our joy is. That we often find it easy to be excited and animated about things that are of very little importance and we can be muted and reserved about the most important things, about spiritual things. It's a function of, our, of dead religion. It's a pharisaical heart that has lost touch with the wonder of grace. And so as you consider Jesus triumphing and weeping, if there is no song that comes bubbling up out of you, then the right response is repentance because it means something is malfunctioning spiritually in your life. But here's the promise, if that's true of you, because it's too often true of me. If the beauty and the glory of Jesus is able to take inanimate objects like rocks and give them a voice, then guess what? No matter how hard your heart might have become, or how upside down your joy might be, or how dull you might have come into the room this morning, if God would do a work in your heart and mind today, if the truth of his power and his love could supernaturally come home to our hearts, then it would give us a song too. Isn't that good news? And so John Newton said, how sweet the name of Jesus sounds in a believer's ears. It soothes his sorrows, heals his wounds, and drives away our fears. Weak is the effort of our heart and cold our warmest thought. But when we see him, when we see you as you art, he says, we'll praise you as we ought. Weak is the effort of my heart and cold my warmest thoughts. But when I see you as you art, I'll praise you as you ought. Amen? Let's ask him to do that this morning, can we? So, Father we would confess to you that we are far more like the stones often than we are the people who are praising and worshiping and celebrating you. And so our repentance this morning begins just there. And so, but it's something that we can't do on our own. It's something we can't work up in our own effort because that's just, that's not real. It's something that requires for it to be a genuine experience, your spirit to come and work in our hearts. And so we would ask in this moment to do just that, to come and meet us in this place and put a song in our hearts that might overflow into praise and adoration because you are worthy of that response. Victorious King, weeping King, we worship you and we pray in Jesus' name, amen. Yeah, it's, that's a good song to clap for, but let me just say, that's a dangerous song to sing. You hear me? So don't go from this place thinking, okay, I got to figure it all out and do all that so that God will love me. Go knowing that he says, there's nothing that, that you're going to face this week that can separate, separate me from your love. We take up our cross, uh, not to win his love, but we take up our cross because he has taken up his cross for us. That's what this benediction means, to receive these words and then go and to whatever he would call you to this week, knowing that there is nothing that can separate you from the love that is yours in Christ Jesus. May the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make his face shine upon you and be gracious to you. May the Lord turn his face towards you and give you his peace, both now and forevermore. Amen. God bless you. Go in his peace.